Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is our first repeat guest, Sasha Derry from Blue Shift Aerospace. Sasha is more understated than you might expect for someone who has helped shepherd the first rocket launch in the world that used bio-derived fuel. And one thing I really appreciated in our conversation is getting a fuller picture of just how much planning Sasha and his team have to do for the coming years. We talk quite a bit about the economics and finance of getting an innovative nano-satellite rocket company off the ground. Sasha provides some great insights about how they are taking good ideas from their knowledge of engineering and science and scaling up a successful business using science as the foundation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Sasha, welcome back to the Maine Science you. Podcast. Great to be um, here again, Kate. I'm, I'm really excited. You have had an extraordinary year, all, made all the more so, I think, by what you've been able to accomplish in the pandemic. So when we last spoke, it was last summer, and you were getting ready, maybe last fall. Anyway, you were getting ready to, to do your first test launch. So at yeah, this yeah. point, I am literally just going to hand you the baton, and you tell me how that went, because I kind of know it from following it, but I think, I think coming from you, it'll be a much better story. Yeah, it was. Uh, so we were supposed to launch in October. But like every rocket company, well, actually not every rocket company, because most rocket companies, when they first launch, they they blow something up. Um, we didn't do that. But like like most rocket companies, uh, things get delayed. There's complications, and we had plenty of them. There was lots of technical hurdles. Um, there was also launch logistic hurdles that we had to overcome. But January 31st, we made history as the very first company in Maine and the world, which I in two different sizes, to launch commercially a rocket uh, using a bio-drive fuel. And, uh, you know, we did it, instead of doing it in a, you know, a reasonable, you know, cool day of fall, we did it in probably one of the coldest days in the northern regions of Maine, in Limestone, Maine. Wonderful town. People really, uh, really were very generous with us there. But it, man, it was minus 14 degrees Fahrenheit when we got up that morning and one of the problems we had which we'd already knew they were going to have was that our computer the rocket worked fine but literally the laptops that was monitoring things and controlling things we were outside all bundled up and ready to deal with it the laptops would just shut down in the temperatures so anyways sort of we launched successfully the the launch parameters met everything we uh, we'd set out for we the customer payloads went up fine. We were able to retrieve them. The rocket almost landed, couldn't have landed in probably a better location other than if it landed back on the rail itself. And we, you know, we, we returned our payloads back to our three customers. Um, and, you know, we live streamed the whole event. We had something like five, 6,000 people watching at one time. And they were from all over the world. Uh, you know, I, I, I found out that there was uh you know, we've worked with uh, folks from NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. And um, one of the, I found out that one of the, uh, one of the wives of the, one of the engineers that was helping us out was watching our launch. And, and you know, that morning, so we, we launched, we had a failed launch due to weather. We weren't allowed to launch because the cloud cover was too, too, too low and too intense. So we had to delay it by, um, I think it was about two or three weeks. And, um, the morning of the 31st, we go to launch and the weather's all of a sudden looking bad. And the weather, well, the weather forecaster told us that was everything's going to be fine. You're going to be okay. And it was delayed, delayed. 
And then, and then we went to go launch and we had one of our valves depressurize. And so what you saw is like the ignition goes off, but the rocket goes nowhere. There's just like this lappy flame that kind of singes the bottom of the rocket. And what I heard was that the wife of this NASA, NASA uh, Marshall Space Flight Center engineer guy, she broke down in tears when she saw that happen. And I gotta say it was most masochistic, I'm sorry, most sadistic like joy on my part. Like somebody cared that much for what we were doing that they cried. Um, I don't really want people to have to cry, but it, it was really neat to see how, um, how, how many people were watching us. And we had lots of people from Latin America and later we found out from Europe and let alone all of the United States watching what this small main rocket company was up to. So, um, and then in the days that followed, three days that followed, I had an email every eight minutes on average, I figured out, asking for pe people that wanted to invest in us. And we were firmly going down the sort of more traditional routes of fundraising and private capital. And, you know, we received, I don't know, it was 500 emails or something like that. Um, and people wanting to to invest in us. So we went down a whole different route. We decided to go with uh, down the route of crowd equity funding, where we sort of democratize who can invest in this small space startup. And we did that. And um, and it's been sort of life changing for us. We've we uh, have crippled our engineering team, you know, most of them are in this an office right next to mine right here. We moved to a, a hangar that can now fit our full construction of our of Starless Rogue, the full-size rocket, uh, suborbital rocket. Um, we are moving, we just moved our test site a few weeks ago to uh, the opposite side of Brunswick Landing uh, into a really secure location, um, the south end of the runway. We are scaling up the test stand to support an engine that's gonna be 10 times as powerful as what we saw in January. We are, I've been very actively working on trying to find a launch location on the down east coast of Maine. And we've had people coming out of the woods, quite literally <laughs> and figuratively, uh, and off the shoreline, reaching out to us uh, to suggest locations we could go to. And um, the Maine Technology Institute has uh, invested more money in us uh, to push us forward. Uh, the governor, Governor Mills, came and visited to do a big announcement of a potential bill for $80 million to go towards innovative new companies such as our own. They're doing R&D and sort of cutting edge research and developing new tech in Maine for, you know, really good paying jobs in Maine. And um, we met, you know, on the WeFunder, which is the, the platform we use for crowd equity funding. We, we met our minimum goal of $500,000 for investment. Um, and we're, we're shooting for the full $1 million um, for this round to fully fund the, uh, the development and completion of our full-size Marvel rocket engine powered by a nearly carbon neutral bio-derived fuel. So I'm gonna stop there because I just talked a whole lot, but uh, I skipped a bunch of things too. Probably all the guys that we hired and the folks who we're bringing on board, we've got a, um, probably we'll have three interns on board here shortly from Maine schools and uh, we can't go fast enough. There's not enough hours in the day. Well, I, yeah, I've been watching excitedly, you know, from the background on, through this whole thing, you know, the, the live stream was, it was cold everywhere. Like it was <laughs> not just where you were in Northern <laughs> Maine, it was a brutal day. So I was kind of glad to be inside watching it yeah. and feeling for you guys. I found the, um, the crowdfunding really intriguing, not, and crowdfunding isn't the right phrase for it, except that it's crowdfunding equity. I'm just, yeah. I'm compressing it. I, I know it's a relatively new tool 
for small yeah. companies and startups. I don't know of any other engineering or science-based company that has done it, which, which only means I don't know about it. I'm just curious if you know of any, and if not, what has it taken for you to decide that that was the way to fund this besides all of these folks reaching out to you? Yeah. So, you know, we were going to go down the route of having, uh, getting angel investment. Um, and we've been talking with a lot of uh, angel investors in Maine who've been uh, really curious about what we're doing. And, you know, we were hoping to raise a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars and maybe additional hundred, hundred fifty from um, the Dirigo angels. But um, in short, in about four days, we raised more money than that um, through crowd agree funding. Now, I think it worked out well for us because we have, you know, let's be honest, rocket, space, Maine, it's pretty damn sexy. Uh, so we had that going for us. We had just done a launch a few months prior. So we had that going for us. It is a non-traditional route. Um, it is unusual. Uh, you know, we have people investing as little as $100 and others investing as, as much as like $27,000. So it's a, a whole range of people. And uh, it's it's definitely different, and I think for the and it's relatively new that you know the crowd equity funding concept is only it was only legalized uh, gosh I think maybe eight or so years ago, and it was limited to raising only a million dollars, which for a lot of tech companies is really limiting. But on March fifteenth of this year, they changed the Security Exchange Commission changed the rules that these, this type of fundraising can be done up to $5 million. So it became a little more approachable for us because, you know, rockets cost a lot. And even though ours are small and, and very cost-effective compared to traditional, uh, traditional rockets, it's still expensive. So that really opened up the, the door for us. But I can say this much. I, I think that, uh, you know, when you, whether you, whoever you're talking to in terms of fundraising, you, you know, we're all used to doing venture capital, uh, angel investment, and we're also frequently told that, yeah, what you're, normally, what's normally going to happen is you're going to go down this route and you're going to have to sell off the company in a few years. And while, you know, we, it's possible we could sell the company off, our intentions are to build a sustainable, profitable, healthy aerospace business in Maine that not only is profitable into itself and growing and, and, and pretty new, high-paying jobs, but it's hopefully seeding and spawning off spinoffs and encouraging other um, folks to come to Maine to build similar businesses, whether it's to build support software systems for satellite services, building, building the nano satellite services themselves or other space related um, technologies here in Maine. Uh, my hope is that we will inspire those, those businesses to grow here. And to, to be part of that, I really want Blue Shift Aerospace to be around for decades, not just a few years. And, you know, that's really what crowd equity funding has allowed us to do is to allow us to say, to be a little bit, uh, have a more ownership of our own, of our future and not feel that we have to sell ourselves off to a defense firm as soon as possible, which is not sort of, not really in alignment with our, our ultimate goals of changing, um, bringing a new industry to Maine, the new space industry. So that's it. I'll, I'll just, I'll just add one more thing is that, We've actually, since we've done that, and uh, MTI and others have seen the success rate of that, we actually have companies, they're sending people coming to us to talk to us. And I have a, a scheduled meeting with another tech company. It's like, how did you do that? And how does it work? This sounds really interesting. I want to do it too. So we might be doing something different. I think it's really cool. I, I have, um, 
I've never entirely understood the venture capital angel investor aspect if you want a long-term vision. So yes. I'm, glad, I'm glad it wasn't me just thinking like, how does that work? Because it, it doesn't. It, I mean, it works for things if, depending on what you want as the end result, but yes. um, I find it really fascinating. And uh, I, will, I will say, you know, you've heard me say this a million times that I think we really do have extraordinary leaders in Maine. And I think this is just another example of taking a tool that's been out there for a relatively short period of time and changing the way people think about it. So I think that's great. Thank you. Yeah. I would like you to talk about your latest and greatest announcement. And I think it was last week about the deal for the CubeSats. Yeah. So to remind people who may not have listened as much as I can't believe I'm saying this, they may not have listened to our first conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you could explain again, the CubeSats and the nanosatellites, and then explain the, the deal, which I, I'm really excited about. Yeah. So um so CubeSats or nanosatellites are about, uh, you know, they're as small as 10 centimeters cube, like 10 by 10 by 10. And it's really thanks to electronics getting smaller or less expensive. It was originally a, a, a sort of a form factor that was developed by, I think it was Stanford. It was, a, I should really know this, a California University as a way, just a really small form factor to fit into very large rockets. And so that students could do, um, could do science and space and, and research. And that was in the early 2000s. Of course, many of those people uh, graduate from school and then they, what they start spawning their own companies. And now there's a whole slew of companies out there that are commercially launching these small CubeSats or nanosatellites, meaning really small satellites. I think nanosatellite is, any satellite under 50 kilograms, I think is considered a nanosatellite. And uh, they're doing things like broadband communication services, doing earth imaging services, and a whole host of novel new technologies. So there's a market, there's a growing market a pent and a pent-up demand for launching satellites. There just hasn't been enough rockets with spare space to squeeze in these nanosatellites. And so we are explicitly going after this market. And really, there's only one other company that has actually dedicated themselves to launching nanosatellites to space. And that's uh, a New Zealand company called Rocket Labs. And uh, they're launching from, well, New Zealand. Uh, shortly, they'll be launching from the US as well. But New Zealand, in many ways, is very similar to Maine. You know, What is the number one industry? Probably tourism. And then number two is probably agriculture, right? Not well known for its aerospace industry. And they had to develop their own spaceport. You know, one thing they didn't have to do is, they had to do is develop their own space agency. So nanosatellites is a, a market, just the market to launch these satellites into, um, into orbit is, is expected to be $69 billion over the next 10 years, just to launch it. So literally just, just what we do is $69 billion. And then the other key is what Maine is particular, particularly well suited for. And that is we, because of our Southern facing coastline, we can launch these uh, satellites into uh, what's called a polar orbit, where we launch it towards the South Pole and then it comes up around the North Pole and cycles around and around. This type of orbit is particularly well suited for communication satellite, which is at least half the market, and uh, communication satellites and uh, Earth imaging satellites, which is probably about another third of the market. So it turns out that um, there was a study done, half, half of the market for launching satellites into space is explicitly for polar orbits. And the only places you can do that from the United States is a very expensive location 
military base in California called Vandenberg, and another one, Kodiak, up in Alaska. Logistically very expensive. So we have a real opportunity to be the only launch location on the eastern seaboard, not Cape Canaveral, not Wallops, to launch these, these, this new burgeoning market for uh, nanosatellites in space. Now, that said, we are doing a phased approach to going to space, right? We're trying to get to the point where we're developing, uh, we're developing the market and our revenue as soon as possible and doing it in a, in a gradated fashion. So first we're gonna do suborbital launches. And what that means is we're gonna be taking payloads up into space and bring them back down. We'll, we'll provide them with like about six minutes of zero G time exposure to space and then bring it back hopefully safely back down to, um, to earth, land in the ocean and bring it back to our customers. And the primary audience for these, uh, for the suborbital launches services are academic and civil researchers. So, and they're principally being funded by NASA Flight Opportunities Program, which is a program that funds these, gives 300 to $500,000 per payload. And each payload is about seven, 10 kilograms to launch with a company like us. So we'll be able to fit in like three to four to five of these payloads into our payload bay at once. So, so that's sort of like the long, so we're planning to do suborbital launches um, starting next year. We'll do a beta flight, which will just go up a few miles. It'd be the full-size rocket. We will underfuel it. Uh, if everything goes well, um, everything seems nominal, we will fuel it up all the way. We'll get our full permissions from the FAA and we'll launch all the way to space by the end of the summer, hopefully no later than the fall of next year. And then after that, we'll be, we'll be launching We'll just start working our cadence up where we'll be launching up to eight times per year between spring and fall. So that gets back to our first purchase order ever uh, for not only just one launch, but a minimum of two launches, I should say a minimum of one launch per year and up to two launches per year with 60 student payloads per year uh, with a company called Max IQ. This is a company that uh, has its origins in South Africa They've developed these really novel little electronic modules. There's actually 80 different ones that can do, each one does a, like a different science, like barometric pressure, radiation, uh, solar insulation, vibration, G-forces, et cetera. There's a whole bunch, of all, and, the, and the students can connect these modules together and put them into together, snap them in together into a form factor that perfectly fits into a CubeSat form factor. And it's really lightweight and it's like one pancake. And you can, turns out you can, in one singular tiny one, what's called a one U, that 10 by 10 centimeter form factor, they can fit five of those into a single CubeSat. And it weighs very little. So what the short of it is that work, we worked with Judy Sancroft, the, the CEO of uh, Max IQ. And we were able to come up with really aggressive pricing that was, uh, particularly beneficial to student payloads. And these are student payloads uh, for uh, these experiments, not only for students in South Africa, the United States, but all over the world, right? And there's certainly a big effort afoot to actually get this in the hands of students in Maine specifically, uh, to really kind of push our future uh, space leadership forward. It's an amazing opportunity because we were able to get the price in a way that was, you know, a student can basically launch, get the, get the, get a full um, collection of these Max IQ electronic kits and launch for like $2,500, which is amazing. They can take a student, you know, a classroom can do a launch to space, get the science, get the training, 
uh, put it together and launch into space for $2,500, which is phenomenal when you consider like a trip to, well, let's say New Zealand would probably cost $2,500. Oh, I think it's more than that. (laughs) (laughs) The flight alone, right? So maybe I'm almost speechless because I think of the the magnitude of possibilities here for uh, both just getting people interested in science, but also all the different measurements and the things that, that can be measured. So this is a total ignorance question, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Are the students able to devise experiments, not just to measure those different things, but to try out like different materials to see if it affects those things? Is that kind of the idea? So, you know, the students can do, they have a, a fair amount of uh, latitude in terms of how they want to construct their experiment. Uh, and I know that, you know, for instance, some of the universities like University, University of Southern Maine, or no, it was Princeton, um, was uh, doing an experiment where they used some of the modules in conjunction with their own hardware. So they allowed the, the max IQ hard modules. And that's certainly a possibility as well, where as long as they're kind of staying within the weight limitations that we require, um, then we don't have an issue where we can ex- allow the students to expand. So one of the neat things about Starless Rogue, our suborbital launch vehicle, is that we made a really oversized payload bay. So what that means is that unlike, you know, what was previously the norm, you really want to, before you really want to stuff as much electronics and, and sensors in as small space as you possibly could. And to make it as dense as possible because you're being charged really by, by volume, to some degree weight. Well, we're kind of reversing that. We allow people to create something that's, um, you know, it may be not dense or you have, you, you're not well laid out. That way the students aren't spending tons of time. Engineering isn't spent how to make something really um, hyper-condensed and microscopic. You're worried about like, well, I just want to do an experiment. And what we've heard from schools is that half their engineering time is being spent on, how, well, how do I make it fit really tightly in this really tight form factor? And so we're really opening that up for uh, students beyond just what we're doing with Max IQ. So we basically allow uh, students and, and, and our traditional customer base, which would be civil and academic researchers, as opposed to students doing science, um, we allow them a lot more volume to play with without any sort of penalty in terms of how much we charge them. It's really just based upon weight. So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but I did want to just say that um, the ongoing launch contract that we have with Max IQ is an ongoing launch contract. So it's not only for our suborbital launches with, with uh, Starless Rogue, it's actually also for on an ongoing basis, but it's also for tentatively for launching orbitally once we're ready to take them on board. I think I've it's really that. cool. It, it's got to be helpful to know that someone else thinks you're on the right track besides just you, right? Little affirmation, but it was. <laughs> well, I don't know if you you know you heard when Judy spoke, but she she was talking about how frustrated. I mean, they came to us. She came to us originally. How, how frustrated they were. They I won't name the competitor, but they I think it was maybe five years ago. They paid for a launch with for the students in a CubeSat form factor to be launched five years ago and it has yet to be launched. And this company is very much still in existence and is hitting the media and they have still not been launched. So they they really feel that they've constantly, you know, their student payloads have been, you know, if there's business class and first class and coach class, it's some classes beyond that that they're getting in terms of service. And I think that's what's really neat is that, you know, Blue Shift, you know, that is sort of our primary audience is, is servicing the academic and civil research crowd, but also the student 
you know, our future scientists, the student crowd, wanting to develop their knowledge and appreciation for what I call the, the S-STEM, the space STEM. <laughs> so, um, well, I, I think what's really interesting and what I, what I kind of see in the future is there's so many things we don't yet know about. You know, when, when you guys launched in, in January, I remember asking you, I felt foolish after the fact, but not at the time, like, well, what do you, you know, what's, what's the experiment? And, the, and you, you know, even the vibrations and the gravity impact and all of these things that even though this has been going on for 50 something years, we still don't know on these micro levels, some of this information, all of which is a long winded way to say, it seems to me just opening up this opportunity to start asking basic questions of what will happen who knows what's going to come from that? It's also like the data that they, so the kids would be for this Max IQ stuff, they collect the data, they save it on board, a little SD card, um, and then they can capture other uh, outside. They will also have the ability if they choose certain cards to transmit it off board if they want to. The data turns out to be of value to us too, right? So, uh, you know, one thing that we really want to gain more and more knowledge and data, and we'll be gathering our, with our own sensors, it's, but still it's good to have additional sensors on board. The vibration data is a great thing. That's one of the things that we really need to, to um, dial in and know how does the vibration stand so the customers, as they're, are, you know, the full commercial customers, as they're building things, they can test to the rigors of those vibrations that we expect to see on board. So um, and it's really going to be really interesting, interesting to see how that varies over time, varies over different seasons, uh, wind conditions, aloft, um, how, how that will change. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of secondary benefits that we're not, we're not even considering knockoff benefits. And I can say, you know, at the very least, there's benefits for us, the fact that these students are doing an incredible array of, of sensors and data collection that hopefully they will share with us, their, their launch provider. So. It's really cool. So how many, I'm gonna make you talk a little bit about what the future is besides that. You said you're gonna launch Star, Starless Rogue next fall, hopefully at the latest. Then, and I'm not going to hold you to this, Sasha. I just want to. <laughs> I, I just want to. Anything get a, a rocket company says, you got to take with a grain of salt. No, I, and I've always appreciated that. Yeah. And then from that point, um, you know, the one question I think everybody's excited about is when is it actually going to be all the way into space? Yeah. So, what would that take? And then, um, kind of with that question, how do you see the size of your company expanding to meet those needs? Because I think there's, I'm going to guess there's, you have gaps in knowledge just oh, by sure. virtue of not everybody can know everything. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we probably need to double our team again by a year from now. So we, we will need to get about to 14 or 15 people about a year from now. We need to raise another three to $4 million between September and May of next year. So I'm already having to look at that. Uh, we may do additional crowd equity funding. Uh, we may do, we may go down to more traditional routes. It depends. The very first flight will be, you know, Starless Rogue Beta. And that would only go up about, um, I think it's like three or four miles. Again, it, it's limited because we, we basically want to keep our rocket within a certain category FAA category. So we, there's a lot of costs associated with the, the, the full flight commercial to space. Assuming that goes well, then we would launch all the way to space by hopefully no later than the fall of next year. So to answer questions, question space, next year, space, uh, all the way to space. And not only space, we'll be actually doing it 
for uh, um, we're doing it much higher than Blue Origin does it or Virgin Galactic does it by a long margin, which is a real incredible value. What we've heard from you know um, university researchers is that you know they're paying big bucks for zero G time exposure to space. And if we can literally double that time, it's an incredible game changer for them because they're doing experiments they have to run in a very narrow window. And if we can open, if we can double that window, albeit it's going from three minutes to six minutes, it means a lot to them. You know, every, you know, I don't know what it turns out to be, uh, you know, per second, but it's, you know, probably it's thousands of dollars per second of, of zero G time and exposure to space. In, in short, we're, you know, we're looking to launch up to eight times a year between spring and fall. Uh, within maybe about three to four years from next year. So we'll be increasing our cadence. We're doing suborbital launches twice a year, four times a year, and we're going to bring it up to about eight times a year. And then by 2024, 2025, we'll have our first all the way to space orbital launch with Red Dwarf, which will be taking the with nanosatellites into low Earth orbit. And again, we'll, our first market there will be academic and civil researcher customers. But the difference there is that probably within about a year of doing that, we will fully embrace sort of the traditional commercial market for taking satellites to space, not just experimental ones, but people who want to put constellations into space or are looking to do uh, earth imaging pro uh, satellites for commercial purposes, et cetera. So that's, you know, that's really, that's an important opportunity for us because you know, and we're planning to go up to 24 of those launches per year. We'll still do suborbital, but that is sort of, you know, that's a part of our business where we, that's sort of the, the hockey stick effect where we, you know, we're bringing in a significant amount of money for a year for, for the business. And we're, you know, we'll probably at that point employing 50, 40 to 50 people a year, possibly more. Uh, we're also looking at opportunities to not only launch in Maine, but maybe seven to eight years from now, once we kind of have that working well from Maine, we may actually launch from Cape Canaveral because there's, you know, not everybody's going to want to do a polar orbit. Some people are going to want to do other orbit, orbital tra trajectories. And so um, uh, Cape Canaveral, uh, Kennedy Space Center, excuse me, is, is um, de has developed a, a launch pad specifically for our size launch vehicle. And because we plan to make everything as mobile as possible, we just kind of truck it down and launch it. We think we can do that easily down at Kennedy as well. So we may actually, what we may do is start doing launches from spring through fall in Maine. And then uh, like so many snowbirds go down, <laughs> go down to Florida, keep on doing it down there uh, a couple times a month and, and you know, keep a constant revenue stream and then bring it back up here uh, during the springtime. So we'll see how it goes. The biggest challenge to Maine and launching from Maine is uh, not so much a cold. You, I mean, Kate, you know we're hardy for it. You know, we can handle the cold. The biggest challenge are the, is the jet stream. So those winds get really tough during the wintertime, and us trying to punch through that is is challenging. So, um, and down in Florida, it's a little less. So it's, it's also another opportunity for us to keep launching. So engineers you need, I know that. What else, like if, if someone says to you, <laughs> Sasha, build a space company from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who, who's part of the team to make that happen? Yeah, I think it's a whole, you know, more engineers. We're going to need avionics. We need, you know, the avionics we're going to need today and the avionics we're going to need a year and a half from today when we start working uh, seriously on the orbital side of things is a whole class higher and more complicated. We are, you know, I'm 
I've, I've already started, you know, we already have a business development person who's reaching out to customers for the Swarble launches. Uh, the marketing group of folks is, we already have three folks working on the marketing front, um, marketing team. And, uh, but some of the other, I think, exciting uh, positions that have become available is the launch site logistics. I mean, when we start going from one to two launches per year to eight, and then, you know, up to 24 on the orbital side, we need uh, regular staff to kind of um, take in customers, uh, help them prepare their payloads, integrate those payloads, prepare for launch. And uh, my antici- I anticipate that'll happen in the, in the Washington County area. And then, you know, I expect there's going to be a fair amount of, uh, I don't know, I don't know the right word for it, but I think something around tourism staff, because I, I anticipate the amount of tourism that we're going to have is going to be significant, not only directly on, you know, our, um, our grounds or our locations, but um, of course, well beyond, you know, in other towns, because you're going to be able to see this from various peninsulas off of Maine, which I think is going to be really neat. Uh, and exciting and draw in more interest and draw in tourism in a part of the state where it doesn't get it. You know, you want to go to Bar Harbor, tourism drops like a rock, right? They've been trying to get tourists, more tourism into Washington County for a long time. And I think this is bound to drive that up. So launch logistics, we're going to need more people helping us integrate the payloads and uh, customer payloads into, uh, into the spacecraft. We're going to need uh, more additional customer service support people and, you know, uh, I mean, one of the biggest ones is manufacturing. So our attentions are, I mean, if all goes well, we'll be doing lots of manufacturing right here in this hangar at Brunswick Landing, uh, doing a lot more of it. And I, I got to say, I hope that the real estate crisis that's happening in the state and all of the country goes away because it's, it's, been, it's already proven difficult. Like we, I literally have engineers who are trying to move closer to the office and can't because real estate is, you know, insane. So... I don't know how that's going to impact us. Impact us. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we're not in Portland for that reason, as much as I love Portland. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to manufacture elsewhere in the state where there's a little more real estate available and our employees can live. But for now, you know, the intentions to do it here in Brunswick Landing, you know, that's done so well by us. So I have so, two rocket-related questions that I don't want to forget. Yeah. Number one, if I remember correctly, the rockets are going to be reusable. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And how much? How many times do you think you'll be able to use it before it just structurally won't work anymore? I mean, we, the truth is we don't know. Yeah. We're going to try it as much as we can. But I can tell you that in my business plan, I assume that a third of the time it's either going to like ditch into the ocean and we, we, we are unable to recover it. Like it nosedives, the parachutes never deploy, takes a really hard dive in the drink, Davy Jones locker, I don't know, whatever. Or, you know, something more catastrophic happens. Uh, our fuel can't blow up, but our oxidizer is under a lot of pressure. Maybe it bursts and structurally damages too much. And we just have to rebuild the whole thing. So, you know, we plan to lose a third of them. And uh, for the first couple of years, and that goes down. So, of course, the business plan looks a lot better when you can recover more and more of them. Now, one thing that's important to, to take into account is that when we launch orbitally, you know, we're now we're talking about clusters of, of rocket engines. So Starless Rogue will have just one engine, but that one engine is the same one we'll use in Red Dwarf many times. Um, the plans currently are, is, you know, Red Dwarf will have, its first stage will have nine of those engines. The second stage, I think, had on the order of, I think it was five, 
And then the, the last stage will just have one of those engines. So our plans are for to recover the first stage set of engines. The second stage, I think, is sketchy as to whether we can actually get it back because it may be so far downrange that we can't get it. And then certainly the last stage, there's no way. It's, it's gone. It's long gone. All right, so I'm glad you mentioned the fuel because that was my other question. Are you, um, and that it doesn't blow up because that in, it, in yeah. and of itself is not what people think of with rocket fuel. Yeah. I'm not gonna make you tell me the secret sauce because yeah. I know you won't. <laughs> um, yeah. What I wanna know is the bio drive part, are you at all concerned about making sure that you have enough access to what you need to make the fuel? Yes, yeah, okay. um, that's a challenge. I would actually, I've been looking a bit at actually trying to get it all here in Maine. I, I don't think that's going to be feasible. Um, I think what we're going to, we're going to have to source it from all around. Um, so I don't think there's going to be an issue for us in the, in the short term, meaning the next three to five years. But, uh, you know, once we're starting to punch up to 24 launches on the orbital side, with that many engines running, you know, each time, each one, each one of those engines is burning 300 pounds of fuel. And even though it's a, it's a solid fuel, and um, you know that's a lot. So to source that, source something that isn't traditionally a fuel from uh, around the world is going to be well around the country is is going to be a little bit of a challenge. So far, you know, we we did our our first purchase order for a very large quantity of this fuel to, for our engine tests, which are about to begin here on Brunswick Landing, and. Um, there was no pushback like, oh, you bought us all out, we're out. <laughs> like, okay, that's good. Uh, so our fuel has a couple of different things, but it has like one thing, a lot of one thing in it. So um, uh, so that's good to know. So that's, yeah. Well, I'm intrigued. I wonder, um, I mean, I think any fuel can be a, in short supply, regardless of whether it's mm -hmm. bio-derived or not, right? Yep. But I do wonder if people will be more inclined, I'm totally showing my biases here, more inclined to book with you because it's bio-derived and less of an impact on the environment. I, I think that, the, that that is actually the case, um, particularly particularly based upon the, the market they were going after, the academic and civil researcher market. And the student, you know, the students are, once again, I remember this, this is happening when even I was coming through college. Once again, the, the, the fate of our globe is dependent upon young people. I think that's irresponsible on older people's, you know, including myself, uh, and say, no, it's out of our hands. It's not out of our hands. We can do something about it today. Um, but the weight is felt uh, harder and heavier by younger and younger folks. So, and you can see that in a younger population of kids that there is a greater percentage of them are, are more concerned about being more responsible for the earth. So, yes, I think that that is the case. Um, and I think, uh, you know, if, at the college level, academic researcher level, uh, both the professors and the researchers also feel the weight of choosing something that's more earth, more earth friendly, more earth, earth responsible. And truly, you know, we are the only option at this point in time, unless, you know, well, even like you take the SLS, you know, if that uses hydrogen and oxygen, that hydrogen is derived, uh, I think almost entirely from, uh, I think petroleum resources. From what we've seen, that's, that's derived from the petroleum process. I think that the short, I think yes. And I think that it's not, it's probably not uh, unlikely that a good percentage of our commercial customers will also choose, be willing to even pay more if they want, if they needed to, to uh, choose our launch services. 
because it's environmentally responsible. Right. More environmentally responsible. I continue to be a fan from afar. I, I love I love what you're doing. I mostly I love the mission Thank that you. you have for making this happen in Maine. I mean, you're building more than just a company here. You're building a whole culture and a mindset. Um, and industry, I think, is what we're changing. I think we're so too. A new industry. Yeah. You know, and I we I know we did a forum back um, in the midst of the dark ages there with the pandemic, where we talked about uh, the different aerospace happening in Maine, and it was I found that really fascinating because there's way more companies here than people realize, and a much longer history. Um, so I'm really thrilled mm. that you're part of that and building on it in a whole new way. Thank you. Well, Kate, uh, thank you very much for taking interest in what we're doing, and um, you know, Maine has kind of been known for the four S. You know, it was like food, farming, fermentation, and fishing, right? And, uh, you know, we're excited to be bringing a new industry to Maine and really helping to prosper, not only just aerospace by itself, but what's called new space. And, you know, keep your ears to the ground, maybe quite literally, when our uh, Marvel engine, full-size Marvel engine roars to life, um, it should be quite a sight. And we'll be, we'll be live streaming that event probably as early as September of this year. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really neat. And, I, you know, I, our whole team is really excited about it. This has just been a delight. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Kate. I really appreciate your continued support. Thanks for listening to the Maine Science Podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Main Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Main theme is composed and performed by Nick Parker. <laughs>